Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Listen to this ACAST show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 265, The Ten Greatest Emperors, with Antony Caldellus. Like many of you, I do think about uh, top ten Roman emperor lists uh, from time to time, and uh, I really enjoy reading uh, other people's on the internet, uh, usually because I so strongly disagree. And um, I do plan, when this podcast reaches 1453, of coming up with my own top 10 list. And um, it was running through my mind recently, um, uh, since having the baby, there's a lot of time when you're uh, just holding a sleeping child or a <laughs> or a feeding child and you uh you think what can i do with my time and uh yeah i was thinking about top 10 lists and then i was thinking about professor anthony caldellis who of course has been on this podcast twice before because he is writing a new history of byzantium he has actually finished that book the new roman empire which is going to be published in october 2023 and of course i will be inviting him onto the podcast to talk about um, that new book. And, um, oh, I wish this book had existed when I started the podcast because it would have been incredibly helpful. Anyway, it occurred to me, who could do a much, much better top 10 list than I could? Anthony Caldellis, even if he hadn't written this book. But having just trawled through the entire history of Byzantium, I thought, there's no way he'd come on the podcast and give us his top 10 list, would he? And I had to email him, you know, pointing out that I imagined he would have, uh, some reservations, given he is a serious academic, and this is obviously a slightly frivolous exercise. But he said yes, much to my delight and surprise. And so he uh, he is here to present his top 10 list. And uh, I will allow uh, him and me in our conversation to introduce that to you properly. Um, all there is uh, left to say is that uh, if you don't know uh, Professor Anthony Caldellis, he is uh, the prof a professor in the Department of Classics at the University of Chicago. He has written uh, over a dozen books on Byzantium, along with translations of Byzantine texts and, of course, many, many articles. He is one of the premier academics on Byzantium, and he's incredibly helpful to this podcast because he's often analyzing the historical texts, um, which he can read in the original Greek and, and has read so much that his analysis is absolutely um, key to the narrative I've been able to present on this podcast. So we owe him a great deal. But without further ado, uh, here is the interview. And if you're listening to this in the future, then do go and check out The New Roman Empire, A History of Byzantium by Antony Caldellus. Professor Caldellus, welcome back to The History of Byzantium. Robin, thank you for inviting me back. Uh, it's an absolute thrill to have you on, and I'm very grateful. 
um, because as I explained in our introduction, you have recently completed a new history of Byzantium spanning 1100 years of Roman civilization. So who could be possibly be better placed to give us a list of the 10 greatest emperors of new Rome? Um, so thank you for agreeing to step down from the heights of academic seriousness to something much more frivolous, um, but something I know the listeners will absolutely love. One yes, so I should say that <laughs> historians, professional historians are not usually in the business of making these kinds of lists, but I found the challenge incredibly fun. Excellent. And you're the best person to do it with. Uh, so I'm, yeah, these, this is not something professional colleagues would approve of. We're not supposed to do this sort of thing. Uh, but here, here we are. And uh, another time we can do the 10 worst emperors, if you want. Oh, excellent. Uh, <laughs> well, the, I am very grateful that you're willing to shame yourself in front of your uh, your peers for the sake of our entertainment. Uh, it's too late for me. <laughs> So one of the reasons these top 10 lists are viewed as silly uh, is that there's no established criteria for what best or greatest or these terms mean. Um, and obviously we know so much more and so much less about different emperors. But uh, for the sake of this exercise, I asked you to create your own criteria, how you would judge best or greatest. Uh, so before we begin the list, could you tell the listeners what your criteria is and how you chose it? Yeah, so it's not exactly a list. It's a much more subjective sense, but I will can tell you and our audience um, what factors shaped it. So I'm not, so I discounted certain things from the start. And these were whether an emperor is associated with um, strong traditions of praise or blame in the subsequent tradition. Now, those are not completely irrelevant, but... There are many cases where um, emperors who were important for all kinds of reasons either didn't receive the the proper amount of attention that they deserve or, or any attention, and some cases where they were praised or blamed by criteria of later generations that were really skewed by polemics that we might either identify as socially marginal or that even didn't exist in their own time. Um, and so... I had to kind of not be too influenced by their reception in the tradition. At the same time, I also wasn't too interested in, for example, much more subjective things like, would I like to have a beer with this emperor? Like, <laughs> do I find this guy interesting? Right. Um, in part because I, I was thinking about it and it's like, I don't, wouldn't really want to meet any of them. <laughs> No, I mean, not for academic purposes, like to interview them, I'd like to meet any of them, but just like to hang out with, no thanks. Um, <laughs> but we can maybe get into that, there's other mm. reasons. Um, and so that goes along with uh, the sort of traditional virtues that were expected of a Byzantine emperor. I didn't put too much emphasis on those. Like there were very set lists of virtues that emperors were supposed to adhere to, you know, from piety to courage and wisdom and justice and all these. And they tend to be very formulaic. Um, and they tend to be formulaically applied to emperors who are thought to deserve them. Whereas what I'm interested in, so these are my sort of real criteria, are their effectiveness at doing their job, which was something that they were evaluated by at the time, especially by historians. Um, so there were certain things that emperors were supposed to do, um, 
and the and they're the following sort of defend the territorial integrity of the empire um, and or defeat opponents, whether that is in a defensive war or offensive war, uh, maintain a relatively balanced budget. Um, so not having to tax subjects more than their predecessors, not having to resort to extraordinary exactions and taxes and so forth, confiscations and all of that that they generally kept their subjects happy. Um, an indication of this is the prevalence of revolts against them, uh, rebellions, plots, coups, so forth. So when emperors get a lot of those happening, it's a sign that something's not going right. Um, and so those are the sort of day-to-day -day kind of administrative, you know, maintenance um, kind of qualities. And they're very important because if you fail at those, you know, terrible things can happen. Um Another one is, you know, were they understood as generally adhering to the social values of their society? These could be religious, could be, you know, um, generally like marital, sexual, whatever. Um, and this kind of bleeds into the question of the virtues I mentioned earlier. But generally, um, you want an emperor as a as a ruler, as a representative of society to be um, reflecting the kind of general moral consensus of that society in some ways. All right. Um, and so you've recently been talking about Andronicus Comnenos. <laughs> There's someone who pro who didn't write in there <laughs> to give it an example. Yes. Um, and finally, and this is a very important criterion, did this ruler implement policies or changes that turned out to be decisively important in the long run? Even if, but and, and decisively important in a good, in a positive way, right? Like, either in shaping the nature of the society or in providing it with institutions and infrastructure and resources that enabled it to survive and or flourish in the future. And so that is an important criterion for me, even if it wasn't recognized necessarily at the time. Uh, so those are my criteria, roughly speaking. Very interesting. Um, okay. So this is good. I, I don't want to preempt the choices, but your your first example made me think of uh, Constantine V. Um, as in, for listeners, that would be an obvious example of an emperor who we know was reasonably competent, but his historical reputation was terrible. So yes. you're kind of picking away at those things when you're looking at this, who yes. how to rate emperors. And the reverse. There are emperors that have a sterling reputation, but that upon inspection... Uh, turn out to be not so um, admirable or impressive. Um, okay. But again, my main criterion is doing the job well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So very, very excited to hear who is number 10. Number 10. Number 10 was the most difficult one for me because it was a, I really had to think about the criteria here. Well, let me tell you who it is. It is Theodosius I. Okay. All right. In my drafts of the list, in, in most of the drafts, he didn't make the cut. He was not a very competent emperor. Mm. Okay. So this is and just are, to remind, sorry, just to remind the listeners, this is fourth yes. century, 379 to 395. That's uh, right. It comes so in after, this, after Adrianople. Exactly. So this is a general of Spanish origin who's appointed Eastern Emperor after the Battle of Adrianople when the Eastern Emperor Valens died. Western Emperor Gratian appoints Theodosius to the East. 
And there were a number of other emperors who were far more competent at the basic business of government and war than he was who didn't make the list. And I'd like to mention them. Um, so even people like Basil I, 9th century, Romanos I, early 10th century. Spoiler, they're not going to appear on, on the list, but they were, I think, more competent individuals and better rulers than Theodosius. So here are my problems with Theodosius. He was a terrible general. Um, he was appointed to clear up the mess in the Balkans with the Goths, and he failed to do so and ran off to Thessaloniki and then to Constantinople to dabble in religion. And meanwhile, a bunch of Western generals um, clean, cleaned up the mess in the Balkans. Um, and thereafter, he tended to just rely on his generals to... Um, he was not very effective against the Goths. Um, he was mostly interested in civil wars, and he waged two civil wars against Western rivals, um, Magnus Maximus and later Eugenius, um, in which he was successful, though not because of his own leadership. And um, overall, I just didn't find him to be a very sort of effective ruler. Um, however, he did a lot of things that were in the long term very, very important. Um, one of them was that he's the he was the first ruler of the fourth century to settle more or less permanently in Constantinople and to begin the transition to the more um, so the non-itinerant form of rulership, right? So instead of having a military emperor running around the frontiers, just sort of settling in Constantinople and developing these civic and political infrastructure that created Byzantium as we know it. Um, and he was also very important in locking in Christianity as the official and really the only, the favored religion of the empire. And he did this in a number of ways. Um, most famously, the Edict of Thessaloniki of 380, which basically said all Roman citizens now have to you know, hold to this faith, which is the specific sort of Catholic Nicene faith of Theodosius. Um, and he names the bishops who are the sort of gold standards of orthodoxy for him. And right after that, he um, convened the Council of Constantinople, uh, which basically put the final nail in the coffin of the, well, we'll loosely call it Aryan version of Christianity. Um, and Theodosius showed some political skill in maneuvering the ecclesiastical factions to essentially back his position. He also was very, very lucky. He was lucky in that the Battle of Adrianople had delegitimated the position of his predecessor, Valence, which was a kind of more, quote, Arianizing position. Um, and he was also lucky in that a number of bishops had just happened to die right before or during the council, and he got to appoint their succession. So it, 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 he created a class of bishops who were loyal to him or indebted to him and therefore likely to go along with his program. And so he managed to kind of impose Nicaea back on the East. Um, and, you know, whether you like that or not, it was definitely a very important move long-term for the religious basis of Byzantine civilization. And he did have some political skill in, in pushing it through, but otherwise I find him a sort of very mediocre person. Um, and he gets in here kind of grudgingly, but um, he, he did, he was kind of like a new founder of Constantinople, settling there, creating the court. And also 
uh, endowing it with lots of monuments. Um, so the new forum and um, the planning the extension of the walls that his grandson eventually, well, the administrators of his grandson, Theodosius II, eventually built, but sort of Golden Gate and the Anemodulion and all kinds of hippodrome, think of the obelisk and all of this. So he does kind of a refounder of Constantinople. I think he kind of tried to outshine Constantine in that regard, but it didn't stick. But anyway, I think he's too important to leave off the list. Very, very good. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Now, my knowledge of pre-Marcian is is much weaker because I didn't cover it on the podcast. But it's interesting because mm. my pushback from a very amateur historian level on Theodosius I would have been, did he win that many victories? Because um, when I take people around his forum today, where the ruins are still quite bulky, I have mm -hmm. to say he built this giant gigantic monuments on a real molehill of military victories so yes. um what you're saying really chimes with me and that it would have looked sort of much more spectacular in a way than constantine's forum but i don't it didn't displace constantine's um column as a place for people to kind of uh, gather no theodosius's monuments were important um, and impressive for sure uh, remember that Justinian's equestrian column right next to Hagia Sophia had the statue on it was repurposed from the form of Theodosius. That was a Theodosian statue. Um, and, you know, he did go down in the tradition as a very important emperor. Um, and and I think if, if his monuments had been more had preserved better, I think we might have, you know, regarded him more highly. But um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> There were better rulers than Theodosius, but they didn't have the, they were better at sort of maintaining the status quo than in making the kinds of changes that he did uh, with very uh, significant long-term impact. So the final question on him, um, again, historical reputation would say his two sons were not the most impressive rulers. Now, perhaps that's uh, not true. But if that if there is truth in that, does he get any blame for them not being better emperors? Or is um, that they were not impressive, that's for sure. But I'm not sure to what degree we can blame emperors in that situation because what what are they supposed to do? I mean, think of Marcus Aurelius also. He had a mm. rather problematic son that that might not have been evident. I mean, he was 18 or something when Marcus Aurelius died. But what are you supposed to do? I mean, if you pass over your own son, um, it's a very difficult decision because it's essentially making that person son very, very vulnerable to, you know, the next person is going to want to, you know, bump him off pretty quickly. And I don't think emperors had that much choice in, in that matter. No. And I suppose it's impossible for us to know how much involvement they had in the raising of their sons. I mean, presumably not a lot day to day though <laughs> uh you know what, yes what one of those with? sons was described was compared to a jellyfish in a contemporary <laughs> way. um fantastic right good number controversial but uh to some not to us number 10 who's at number nine leo the third yeah so this is the uh, the emperor who defended constantinople from the arab siege of 717 and uh 
and started iconoclasm if you if you follow a certain line of history i suppose yes so let's start with the positives here and leo the third so early 8th century uh, 717 to 741 uh, extremely competent person uh, clever devious uh, planning ahead um his greatest accomplishment was in saving Constantinople um, during the Arab siege of uh, 717 to 718. And if you read the accounts of the siege with, with these massive army coming over land from Asia Minor and a massive fleet coming up from the Aegean you know, to Constantinople to attack the city, his defense was masterful. I mean, just an incredible piece of strategy. Um, everywhere the Arabs went, they found his traps and he hemmed them in and they quickly became the besieged. Um, and it, it, it was incredible. It broke the tide of Arab attacks. This, it really did. Um, and it's, the raids continued in Asia Minor. Um, Arabs had been raiding Asia Minor right for a century by that point. Um, but again, it was Leo who organized the, the defenses such that even the raiding, he kind of get under got under control. So toward the end of his reign, so toward 740, 741, um, he and his son uh, defeated a major Arab army in Northwest Asia Minor. Um, and that actually kind of even broke the tide of the major rating. So in terms of moving the history of East Rome from a completely defensive position being battered and pummeled for a century, which they had been, because of Leo III, a kind of balance was restored. And after him, the rating kind of gets much more balanced as back and forth, back and forth. Um, and at the same time, in doing all of that, as just he's an incredible organizer and administrator, he ended the political chaos of the generation before him, right? So uh, your listeners will know that in the later 7th century, you start getting this wild succession of coups and rebellions, um, you know, a lot of them centering around Justinian II, the emperor whose nose was cut off. And like emperor after emperor were, was being appointed by, you know, an army unit here, of, you know, palace bodyguards over there. Just it was just crazy, um, even though the operations of the government seem to have continued unaffected throughout that period. This is a distinctive you know, feature of, you know, Roman governance. Um, it, it was politically unstable and he brought an end to that. So for restoring stability and you know, changing the the dynamics of the relationship with the caliphate, um, he's a major ruler. Also, he produced the new law code, the Ecloyi, which was very, very important and influential for a very long time. It was much later that the Macedonian emperors replaced it with something else. Um, and and then there's iconoclasm. And yeah, I mean, he did something about about icons. We don't know exactly what. Um, and it caused a rupture with especially you know, Rome, the, the Church of Rome. Uh, within uh, East Roman society, there doesn't appear to have been any controversy at the time. 
not much that we can detect. Uh, about iconoclasm in general, I have found no evidence of popular interest in it. Uh, no major protests in the streets, demonstrations, whether for or against icons. This was an affair that was limited to very few people. Um, we don't even know what Leo III uh, asked for, quote, or decreed or whatever. The language is very vague. He's one of the least well-documented emperors, by the mm -hmm. way, in, in general. Uh, but those achievements that I mentioned, we know of for sure. Um, so for doing that, um, he gets... Uh, he gets on the list. Yeah. And w would you say he's not higher in part because we know so little about him? Um, it could be. Yeah, it could be if we had a contemporary informed and, you know, relatively sympathetic source, uh, we might be able to speak a more about his uh, achievements. This is... Um, <laughs> Sorry. So I'm, yeah. I'm thinking thinking of amusing ways to push back, and this is testing my knowledge. But okay. doesn't his colleague, is it, is it Artavazdos? I'm trying yes. to remember. Doesn't he then try to usurp Leo's son? Um, yes, yeah, immediately afterwards. Yes. Do we blame Leo for that at all? Or is, is that stretching it too far? I don't know. Um, so I didn't mention this in my criteria, but... I tend not to judge these characters by the means by which they came to the throne. If we do that, a lot of these people suddenly look very, very problematic. But mm. I'm I'm simply focusing on what they did once they were in power and not yeah. how they got there. It was part of the system that, you know, you sometimes have to break some eggs to... <laughs> um, and Leo did... Um, you know, actually a lot of the people I'm going to be talking about were, or were considered usurpers and yeah. that's just, that's just the nature of the system. Um, so what happened between his, um, what is it? Son-in-law and son is a different story. Uh, actually we'll get to that story. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. Um, <clears throat> Leo, um, I think for our listeners looks even more impressive in the wake of um, the sack of Constantinople in 1204, obviously very different eras, but yes, th there's an echo of endless civil war and usurpation then leading to a, a major enemy army. And Leo's response, you know, was yeah. uh, very competent. And let me say that even though he generally attracted negative coverage in the tradition because of iconoclasm and solely because of iconoclasm. I find that interesting in that if the iconoclast had a a lot of dirt on him that wasn't related to iconoclasm, they would have thrown that, you know, at him as well, but they didn't. There there isn't a whole lot in terms of like your classic, you know, tyranny, <laughs> you know, oppressing your subjects, confiscating their wealth, all that. There really isn't that much about that there or hardly any. So I take it he was a you know fairly conscientious, let's put it legal, uh, operating within the constraints of the law and so forth, um, for the most part. So he's great. Very good. Uh, who is at number eight? Alexios Komnenos, the first. Very, very good. Very familiar to the listeners. I don't need to remind them. Yes. 
Um, so this is a character who combines some really, really good qualities with some really problematic ones. And it would be hard to decide where he belongs simply based on those. But he made the list and above Leo III in part because of the enormity of the challenges that he faced, uh, which were bigger than those of Leo III, uh, arguably. So uh, I'll start with the, um, the positive qualities here. Um, definitely hardworking, um, spent his entire life running around like crazy, you know, trying to, especially militarily, um, to do what he thought was right for the empire. He, 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 he hardly ever rested, um, was mostly successful though. You know, it often took a few tries. Like if you read the Alexiad, you'll, you'll realize just how many times he had to be defeated at great cost to his armies and his subjects before he finally found the winning strategy. But he almost always did in the end. So again, it's this, but he comes out ahead. He's like one of these classic cases of, you know, the ancient Romans who, you know, when, although they lost a lot of battles, would always win the wars. He's one of those cases. Um, so tremendous losses, but came out ahead. Very, very cunning, um, capable of you know, diplomacy on multiple levels, um, moving a lot of pieces around on the chessboard. So he had to, when he came to power, the empire was basically reduced to Constantinople. Uh, Turks had overrun Asia Minor, re rebellions, rebels in the in the West, in, in, in the Balkans. Um, and he put it back together. He 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 reconsolidated the Balkan provinces um, against sort of Pechenegg and Kuman attacks after and Norman attacks. Um, you know, very few emperors faced that level of you know intense warfare and came out ahead. And he even managed to maneuver the First Crusade in such a way as to reclaim Western Asia Minor as well. Um, and so kudos to him for all that. That was a, it was a tremendous achievement, albeit accomplished at great cost. Um, and he also, so we're now moving into grayer areas. Um, he reformed the currency um, in a way that lasted. That's generally a positive accomplishment. But his reorganization of the finances of the state, I find a little problematic. So he started this. So first of all, he confiscated enormous amounts of properties from his subjects and from monasteries and whatever. Now, for the monasteries, we we don't need to you know shed too many tears. A lot of those properties had been imperial gifts in the first place. Um, you can almost think of them as a here you hold this until I need it um, situation. Mm. Um, but so he did confiscate all his properties instead of putting it directly to public use um, through the old, you know, sort of state bureaucracy system. He seems to have sort of parceled it out um, into these, you know, which are probably pronoias. Um, that is grants of blocks of land that he would make to his followers or usually relatives and kind of entrusting them with the administration of these lands. And so taxpayers would pay not directly to the imperial fisc, the government, but 
to those intermediaries who would then provide some kind of public service um, that Alexius requested of them. And this is a system that lasted through the Comnenian period. Um, it's being it's a very technical area of uh, fiscal administration. You can really get lost in the details. It's not clear to me whether why the Comnenian emperors preferred this system rather than the more centralized uh, Macedonian approach. And it's not clear to me that it was necessarily a good system in the long run. Um, but it was a major reorganization, and it was largely due to him. So uh, he he gets that too. Now there are a lot of negatives um, to you know put put under his name. Um, he was sure, so he was canny, but also cynical. And I have the impression, I mean, they, they thought of him like that at the time. And I have the impression that he manipulated religion uh, for political goals um, in, a, in a way that was, I mean, most emperors do that, right? But he did it in, in such a uh, obvious way that even contemporaries weren't fooled. Um, so, uh, you know, putting philosophers on trial, um, even some bishops uh, for, you know, their views, um, sometimes splitting the church, um, you know, strong arming people in various sectors of society and through intimidation and so forth, um, you know, being hyper-religious, even when he himself, I don't, I think he was rather cynical about some of these things. So putting education under the control of the clergy, which is something that even they didn't necessarily want, but Anyway, there's a lot of cynicism there um, and 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 some religious posturing that I I, I, it, I don't like it and a lot of contemporaries didn't either. That's really interesting. I mean I remember um, kind of show trials or sort of burning yeah. people at the stake. Um, is that right? Or do because I know yes. you, so yeah yeah, so you're thinking of the Bogomil, Bog, mm. Bogomil, sorry. Yeah. Um, and this is an episode that's recounted by his daughter, Anna. Mm. Um, we should mention Anna. She's kind of a important part of the story of Alexius because we know most about his reign from her. Um, she's a she was an intellectual philosopher, um, you know, very good writer, um, but partisan in, in defending her father in, in a way that makes her also unreliable. Um, and her chronology is all garbled, and and you you can't always trust what she's saying. A lot of the time, it, th there's some things that she completely misrepresents. For example, she makes Alexius um, be surprised at the arrival of the Crusaders, and mm -hmm. it, almost 100, he was not. He knew exactly what was coming and was prepared mm -hmm. for it. Um, and he also, she also has um, Alexius burn these uh, Bogomil heretics at the stake, and. It's not mentioned, this is not mentioned anywhere else. And we have other accounts of the sort of crackdown on, on the Bogomils. And it's possible that she's made that up. Mm. Um, the the way she reports, anyway, it's problematic. And mm. I had read an article which suggested <clears throat> that this is very fishy here and we should be cautious about it. So it is possible that he didn't actually do that, but he was cracking down on heretics. There's, there's no question about that. And mm. in a way that he, like, he really didn't need to, like it didn't benefit, you know, Roman society or the stability of the empire, or anything like that for him to, you know, go after all of these people just to make a show of his orthodoxy. Um, and 
others at the time thought so too. Like, I mean, this is this is too much, man. But mm. uh, but but he had a real problem with legitimacy because of the way he came to the throne. He was a usurper. Um, his army had sacked Constantinople when they took over in 1081. That didn't go over well. And his constant defeats and all of these plots against him um, were always, you know, kept him on the defensive. Like he was always afraid that he might be deposed. Um, and so, yeah, um, so there's some there's some dubious qualities there. But overall, a very, very impressive person, you know, ruled for almost 40 years. Yeah, I'm, I don't want to... Um... I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time by pushing back on too many of these because uh, it would ask you push, more questions. Push away. But let's two questions then. Um, probably an easier one. Does he deserve any blame for Tertikios abandoning the Crusaders at Antioch uh, so that there was no representative of Byzantium there when they took the city and thus they never got the city back? Um, Possibly... We don't know exactly what the arrangement was, um, what arrangement he had with the Crusaders mm. about that specific um, moment in the campaign. Now, let me say that my view of the First Crusade differs significantly from that which you'll find in most Western scholarship. And most Western scholarship pays very little attention to Byzantium and to Alexius as just kind of, oh, we're just passing through. Mm. But if you look at the route taken by the first, the army of the First Crusade through Asia Minor, it's not mm. the logical route that you would take if you were heading to Jerusalem. Um, they took a route that was very, very uh, Byzantine in orientation in the sense that it, it, it's pretty clear that, that what they were trying to do is they, they took this sort of circuitous route that was reconnecting various places along the way back to the imperial center. And providing cover for what Alexius and Ioannis Lucas was doing in Western Asia Minor. So it, I think it was a coordinated campaign. It was very much designed to benefit the, the Roman Empire and only secondarily to advance the Crusaders to Jerusalem. Um, and if that's the case, it completely changes how we think of the the army. Um, the I mean, the 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 strategy of the first uh, crusade once it reached um, like Constantinople and after that. Now, you know, as far as we can tell, Alexius was on his way to Antioch when he received word. Um, you know, everybody knows the story that all is lost. The, you know, the, the army has fallen before the walls of Antioch. There's no reason for you to go on any further. And he didn't. And it turned out that wasn't the case. Um, and the Crusaders survived and took Antioch. And that's kind of where the relations began to really sour, in particular because of the Norman propaganda. Um, Bohemund and you know his his claim to Antioch and and, and and so forth. It's you know, had Alexius pushed the matter a little further and been, you know, had he rushed to Antioch regardless and been there and helped. It, yeah, the, that history would have gone very differently. And it's quite possible that this massive outpouring of anti-Alexian propaganda in the West wouldn't have happened. This was this anti-Alexian propaganda was a real blow um, because it, it continued to grow and fester 
until you know a century later it had turned into this manic hatred um on the part of many people in the west that you know that that the, the greeks um are sort of um, undermining the crusades and secretly working with the turks and all of this stuff but he couldn't really have known how that would play out like that's a real wild card to yeah. to imagine and you know, at the moment he's at, he was at Philomelion. He, he's got an army. There are logistics. There's dangers. He had, would have had to go through Turkish territory to reach Antioch, mm. and you you know you 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 receive reliable nuke from uh, news from a was it a, a count that you know all is lost. And mm. uh, okay, yeah. And what can you do? And yeah, I, I do wonder if there would have been any food to eat if the army had turned up at Antioch at that point. But anyway, um. Yeah. Again, I'm wary of asking this because we could talk for an hour about it, but yeah. does Alexius deserve blame for the collapse or any blame for the collapse after Manuel's death in terms of kind of what you were talking about, in terms of the financial system or the way the court was restructured around his family? Yes, uh, indirectly. Um, you know, I'm sort of hesitant to blame people for things that happen yeah. you know, 70 or 80 years after their death. But indirectly, the system of sort of family governance that he promoted, um, I think, eroded the the coherence of the polity as a whole. Well, we'll we'll talk about that um, uh, later on in, in in this discussion. Okay. Um. But yeah, the 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 family rule thing had its benefits and its disadvantages. I'm not I'm not going to put it down in either column. Mm. But yeah, yeah, long term, it, it it caused some problems. Brilliant. Okay, we have reached number seven. Basil the second. Oh, so that this is exactly what I wanted to hear. And there are listeners furiously uh, frothing at the mouth already to say how how can he be so low? I would say so low. Oh, is that the uh, ah? I w- I would have thought he would be uh, yeah. High up for a lot of people. Um, granted, I I understand that, and if you want to put him higher, you can. I guess then the burden is on me to explain why the ones that I put higher are higher, and I'll do that when we get to them. Absolutely. So I suppose that his. Accomplishments and virtues are well known, um, and I don't need to go over them too much. Um, maybe I need to explain why he's number seven, right? Rather, rather than higher. Um, not a tremendously interesting person. <laughs> um, now I know that violates my rule about <laughs> like this isn't who who you would enjoy hanging out with. Um. But it actually has consequences um, for him as a ruler. So what Basel did very, very well was to um, sit on, you know, sit on his army and you know, fight in the Balkans, which he did for apparently decades to defeat Bulgaria. And periodically, he would take a break and head off to Syria. Um, when there was a problem. So he would rush across Asia Minor, did this a couple times, um, to scare away some Fatimid army or whatever. 
and and did so. Like when when Basel approached, all the all the mice ran away. Right, this is totally a cat, um, and and the same in the Caucasus too. So he um, kind of bullied a number of princes there to surrender their realms to him um, in the in so Georgian or Armenian types. Um, so expanded the empire in that direction. Um, maintained the expanded frontier in Syria that Nikiforos Fokas and Simiskis had created fighting in the Balkans. We actually really have no information about him in Constantinople. Again, for someone who reigned for 50 years, we have huge gaps in our information about him. All your, your audience knows this. If it turns out that he like rarely spent any time in Constantinople, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, or I wouldn't be shocked. Like it's entirely possible. Um, yeah, he probably went back for the winters, but I think he spent probably most of his time with the army. Now, what this means is that we're talking about a really stripped down understanding of the imperial position. He's doing war and he's staying away from politics. Um, so much so that there were times when he would just simply leave the patriarchate vacant for years and years and years, just not making appointments, consolidated all the power into his own hands, stepped away from political life in the capital and just fought wars. And so to me, that is a, that's a very narrow understanding of the imperial office and what he wants. So he didn't, Amsalos complained about this. He didn't like promote literature or culture or whatever. Um, the only thing we know he did, uh, there's an earthquake, uh, cracked the dome of a Sophia, had it repaired. Fine. Yeah. But like, that's kind of all there is. And so much that so he didn't even marry, you know, no in-laws, no heirs, no, no, there's no political scene. It's very, very stripped down. Um, now, if you were to ask me, oh, you know, pick a period when you would, if, if you had to be alive during that millennium in Constantinople, pick a period when you would want to be there. Well, you know, those 50 years were pretty quiet, pretty prosperous. And, you know, like, I'm not sort of political. I'm not going to like complain that the emperor has blocked my political ambitions or anything like that. I just go about my life. It, it's perfectly fine. Like he provided safety and security for the majority of his subjects. And that's, you know, that's admirable. Um, but there's not a whole lot more than you can say about him. And the challenges that he faced weren't as serious as those of Alexius. I mean, uh, you know, it's really just the war with Bulgaria. Um, Bulgaria is a really formidable enemy. And it's possible that he didn't actually have to wage that war. Right? Like just simply conquering Bulgaria doesn't impress me that much. Like, okay, strategically and whatever, but it would have been more interesting if he'd managed to forge a lasting peace with Bulgaria. Like I, I, there's no evidence that he tried, but of course, you know, our, our evidence is very limited. Um, so I'm not sure that he had to wage that war. Um, maybe he did. I, like we, we, we don't know. We don't know the circumstances exactly. Um but uh, anyway, that's kind of why I put him there. What's your pushback? Well, uh, I'm interested that you haven't mentioned 
what, what, what I would see as the major negative of his, which is that he did not leave a successor and seems to have prevented his brother's daughters from marrying and having children of their own, which, I mean, so he's kind of killing the dynasty. Yes. Um, that seems to me to be a massive black mark against him in an otherwise pretty successful reign. Well, hold on. So just a moment <laughs> ago, you said, well, what about Theodosius with his two jelly, <laughs> jellyfish <laughs> sons? You know, maybe Basel's like, wait a minute, if I have children and they're duds, I'm just imposing them on the political system. Why don't we just end this dynasty and see what happens? Like it, the, the polity will find someone. And it, look, I, I so I thought of that uh, when I was making the list. But then I realized there's so many East Roman emperors who also don't provide for the succession. We we can go through a long, long list, right, of mm -hmm. emperors who are childish old old men and don't make any provision for the succession and die. And then people just have to make it up, you know, kind of figure it out. Uh, Anastasia, Justinian, like, and, 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 and many others. And um, this seems to have been a choice within the East Roman political system, just to like, not make a decision in part because, you know, you'd then be bringing someone on who can cause you trouble and it gets complicated um, and just kind of leave the choice to the political system once you're gone. But yeah, I think it was, it's pretty clear that he knew that the dynasty was going to end through his choices and he was fine with that. And I, I don't, I don't know how to judge that. But, yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, on a personal level, I guess you would just think, I'm leaving the chance here that a general under my command is going to murder my family, friends, servants when they take the palace. You know, I could be leaving things to a nasty civil war. And if I just appoint someone, that might not happen. But right. Yeah. But there you go. Um, I mean, I think the listeners pushback would just be the kind of security and military victories and length of reign. Um it, it, he is so hard to to understand because of the absence of sources. Yes. Yeah, a very opaque person. I think he was opaque even to his own contemporaries. Um, like, I don't think that we would ever have, ha even if we had a rich documentary um, a source basis, we would never have like, got, gotten close to him, you know, the man. Mm. Um, I think he was a very sort of secretive person, uh, which requires a great deal of mental discipline just simply not to blab about everything you're doing, um, mm -hmm. especially in that position where people start to, you know, it gets to their head. Uh, so tremendous mental discipline to maintain that for so many years. Um, but yeah, I mean, he inherited an empire that had been made, that had been fortified and strengthened by decades of, you know, other people's campaigns and building up the armies and so forth. It's not like he had a whole lot to fear, um, except for Bulgaria. And, you know, whether that was a war of choice remains open. It's not like Alexius, you know, who who really was in just desperate situation. Mm. Um, armies in shambles, you know, fighting, having to fight Normans and, mm. and Pechenegs and Cumans and Turks and Crusaders. Like, Basel didn't have to deal with any of that. 
No, I mean, what again, briefly, I guess, <laughs> what would you make of the Michael Angold's angle uh, that Basil left the Empire too extended um, and made life difficult for those who came after? Yeah, so I've addressed that in print, and I'm not persuaded by that. Um, it, it's not just Michael Angold. I mean, it's an older position. It I goes at least back to Ostrogorsky and, um, and, and possibly others. Um, I don't see any evidence that Basel was responsible for anything like that. Um, and in particular, I mean, his major war was in Bulgaria, was Bulgaria and Bulgaria, the, 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 the Balkan empire that he left behind was the more secure part, um, that his successors could count on and fall back on, mm. um, like Alexius. And it was the Eastern part, which was not where he had waged. Um, most of his uh, offensive wars, that was Fokas and Tsimiskis, um, that proved to be more problematic. Though even in that case, I don't necessarily think that we can blame them um, for that. Um, you know, uh, the the Seljuk Turks were the Seljuk Turks. It's not something that anyone could have foreseen in the late 10th century. And I'm not even sure that there was anything they could really do about it, actually. Um, I, I think that storm was kind of inevitable um, the way it played out. But um, the there's actually a technical issue here, which has to do with the organization of the armies. Um, so the specific accusation against Basel II is that, you know, by extending the frontiers of the empire um, or by, you know, focusing the warfare on the frontiers, which are now farther away from the Anatolian sort of heartland, um, he hollowed out the sort of military preparedness of the uh, sort of central Asia Minor provinces, um, so that once the frontiers armies armies are defeated by, say, the Seljuks, um, the interior collapses more easily. Um, and uh, you know that's possible in some ways, but uh, it, that just that wasn't just Basel. Um, and this this. I, I can also see the argument for having a strategic frontier around Antioch rather than the Taurus Mountains. Mm. Um, and the the main problem with that argument is that it assumes that the Seljuk invaders were comparable to the Arab invaders of the 7th and 8th centuries. They're not. They're co totally different enemies in every possible way. And so, um, other than that they're Muslim, but that's kind of irrelevant for the warfare. And so um, the, 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 the argument kind of boils down to the changes in military deployment of the 10th and 11th centuries would have made the empire less able to resist the Arab invasions of the 7th and 8th century, but they're not facing those. No. And that, that feels entirely based on hindsight, that if the Seljuk invasions don't happen, does anyone say that about Basil? That oh, you exactly. hollowed out the plateau yes. anyway. Yeah. All right, very good. Who is number six? Manuel Comnenos, Manuel Comnenos. This this is fantastically controversial from a, a traditional narrative point of view. We've just finished Manuel, who had a a very spotty record in in the eyes of many listeners. Yes, and they're right. Um, however, so as you said, I just finished writing 
a long history of Byzantium, a thousand pages. And I can honestly say that the emperor I came away with most impressed by, you know, studying them in detail through the sources and in all the complexity of their, you know, policies and so forth. I, I got to say, I was really, really impressed by what he tried to do. Now, it has tremendous flaws. I mean, he and drawbacks. It 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 does. But I I put him above Basel simply because of the wow factor. Hmm. Um, and and so this is a very very complex figure living in a very very complex time. Uh, so let me try to put it as follows: There are periods in Byzantine history, like under Basel, when the Roman Empire is really just dominant. I like if you can just you know conquer something like Bulgaria, <laughs> um, despite you know it took a many decades and enormous effort. But if you can do that, if you can just absorb uh, you know Caucasian principalities just by bullying them, um, you're, you're dominant. Uh, you know this is the most powerful you know not only Christian state but you know, even stronger than its uh, Muslim neighbors. In the later Byzantine period, it, it goes to it's a second rate power and then a third rate power and, you know, and so on. Um, and it's, it's not one of the major powers, um, you know, of, of Europe and the Near East, especially once you get, you know, the Mongols or something like that. It's just a really small thing. There's this one moment of balance when the Eastern Empire is a peer institution to a number of Western and Eastern survivals. And that's the reign of Manuel, right? This, it's this one moment when they're, you know, roughly the same kind of power, prestige, standing in the international order, and Manuel has certain advantages. He has advantages in the antiquity and prestige of his state. And he has advantages in the apparently unlimited amount of money that he had to spend. I mean, I <laughs> I don't know where he got all this money. Yeah, he was he was squeezing his subjects a little bit harder, I think, than most. But compared to his neighbors, he he was, you know, his cash flow was incredible. Um so I look at him through that lens, right? So he's not on top of the strongest state and he's not on top of a weak state. He's on top of one that, right, that is is perched in this very turned out temporary moment of, of parity. And he tried very impressively, like this was his goal. His goal was to use the resources that he had to, to reestablish some sort of hegemony over these kind of concentric circles of dependence around him and spent almost all of his very long reign, like 40 years, um, waging war, but also using lots of diplomacy and like soft power, like money, bribes, gifts, right? All of that. Um, wine them and dine them in Constantinople, over all them with spectacle, like he never stopped. It's tireless. 
at trying to get them to accept him as a kind of nominal overlord. Doesn't matter if they were Christian or Muslim. He did this with both, right? He had, so he developed all this ceremony to to very spectacularly present uh, himself as superior in status. Um, He was involved in, so he's a far more complex figure than Basel. And this is what I find interesting. Um, He's having to run diplomacy on multiple levels, um, you know, cultural policy, in, in deeply engaged with the church himself personally, like Basel was completely not like that. Did, he almost didn't exist in his reign and uh, in warfare, which was his primary activity. Um, he was, you know, by all accounts, valorous and, you know, not a bad general. Um, and he kind of managed to do it. I mean, it's really, really incredible. He got, Italians again, Italian city states. He almost got the Pope to go along. That for me is just mind blowing that he managed to almost get the Pope to go along with this and recognize him as Roman emperor. He got Hungary, he got Serbia, he got um, the Seljuk Sultan, he got the kingdom of Jerusalem, right? He got the king of Jerusalem. The only one to leave Jerusalem for any reason went to Constantinople to bow to Manuel. He got Antioch, right? So this was a successful policy against very difficult odds. And I just really admire the, the, the tenacity and the subtlety with which he did this. He was, by all accounts, a very intelligent and engaging person. Uh, I don't really see him as being like vindictive or cruel or anything like that. He was, he was eloquent um, you know, intelligent, um, and, uh, sort of very worldly person. Um, and I was just very, very impressed, mm. uh, for all of that. Um, and now there are also a lot of negatives, hmm. uh, but I guess that goes along with being an interesting person, right? So the negatives are, um, I think he did squeeze his subjects a little bit too much in taxation. Um, His family became this large, um, almost uncontrollable thing. Um, Now, he could control it. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. But as soon as he left, there was nobody left who could control it. It it had grown too powerful for any one person, even someone with his charisma, uh, to handle. Um, And the the most disappointing part of it is that all of that project that he built up it failed it just collapsed immediately as soon as he died and the reason for that is the the incompatibility of the way the roman polity worked and had always worked and the mechanisms by which he bound other people to himself those two things did not intersect mm. in other words all of this bowing of the knee and accepting subordinate status and calling him father and all of the, all this sitting on a lower throne and all of this stuff and sending tributary, you know, auxiliary forces to his armies and all of that. That was all linked to him personally, hmm. not to the polity of the Romans, which is actually what he's governing. And as soon as he dies, there are no more links to those things. And 
and there was just he he never found a way to perpetuate um those circles of dependency to his heirs mm. um and i don't think that he could have i mean in other words it's this it was this spectacular effort to do something that couldn't last um and so yeah in, incredibly impressive person and ambition and skill um but in the end i don't think it worked um and and byzantium slide toward becoming a second and then third rate power um i'm not going to fault him for mediocephalon by the way um that mm. was that's that's a battle you know you win some you lose some uh, basel lost some battles too right um mm. it's not a um and it didn't it didn't really cost the empire much. There was a, you know, little bit of prestige. I think it bothered him, but it wasn't the kind of battle that changed any, um, you know, any, any uh, frontier lines or balance of power in Asia Minor or anything mm -hmm. like that. So that's that's my that's my take on Manuel I. And I know it might be a bit controversial, but we're just having fun. <laughs> no, I like it very much. Um, one of the things that struck me as very impressive about him is that very few emperors in my mind that I may be forgetting had to deal with like a international relations paradigm shift mm -hmm. during yes. their reign. Yes. So he, you're exactly he, right. Obviously he was the youngest son, so he wasn't actually thinking I'm going to be emperor, but while his father was reigning, he had, he imagined being emperor would have thought I'll be fighting in Anatolia We'll be trying to get Antioch back. That's what we're doing. Once mm -hmm. there's a second crusade, as it were, he very quickly realizes, oh, this is different now. That this is a different world and I need to realign where we are. I can't shut the Latins out and say, no, I'm not helping you and I want Antioch back. He has to say, oh, no, I'm on your side and I, yeah. I'm all for crusading. Yes, yes. And his pro-Latin policy was unpopular at home. Um, th this is another sad thing, and and that and it, it to me it indicates just how deeply rooted this anti quote Greek bias was in the West and among the Latins that they really admired him, they really liked him. Of course, you know they also took his money, but that goodwill did not extend to his subjects at all, mm. and it's almost like. It's so sad because Manuel's like trying to have not just himself, but his people sort of accepted into the club and mm. they just won't have him, right? Mm. They're like, nah, don't, we don't know about you people. And it's, yeah, they admire him, but they really despise his subjects. And it didn't work. Like, I, I think that in the end, that whole project was kind of doomed and, and it might have been better for him to just kind of be more a little bit more isolationist in part why because all of this these international marriages they just kept bringing all these ambitious adventurers into the imperial family mm. and all they did was cause trouble mm. afterwards and so it would have been better not to admit them at all um like just stick with you know intra-roman marriages and, and leave it at that now you know so he, I'm, I'm i'm making the case against him here um, and I, yes. I realize that, but, but I will, I will say to your readers, your readers, uh, your audience who are skeptical that 
the, the more time you spend looking at him and the, sort of the nitty gritty of his policies, the more impressed you'll be by them, even though you know that it's not going to work out. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. I, I and I like you've done the pushback for me. The, the I, there's only one more thing to add, um, which perhaps the context is is clearer to you than it was to me. But in the midst of this program to try and fit in with the nations of the West, I'm on your side. He manages to anger the King of Sicily. It seemed by yanking away. A bride. I don't know how true that is. That's the story. And then he does this mass arrest of the Venetians. Now, to me, <laughs> the Venetians are your defense against the Normans. Uh, they have been since Alexius's day. So to do that is to me to say, I'm I'm leaving the door open for the Normans. And it was a Norman attack during the Second Crusade that sort of alerted him to the danger of. The, this the crusading movement potentially being aligned with a an aggressive power like the normans so i i really sort of was baffled by the logic of arresting all the venetians <laughs> even though obviously i'm sure he had reasons for doing that but the 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 fallout from that seemed to me to be very dangerous uh, potentially yes yeah so um i i don't think those two episodes are aligned in other words um, the Venetian arrest is much, much later. Yeah. Um, and so and this can get complicated because, as you said, this is a complicated, um, you know, international scene. Manuel had a very strong Navy. Um, he, he kept it up. It's possible that he had up to 200 warships. And any move that he made against the Venetians was countered by an opening to the Genoese. And you can't have the Venetians pushing you around forever. I mean, he, he wouldn't. Uh, they, they were not, the Venetians were not as powerful as, as, as one might think. Um, it would have been very difficult for them to, at that time, mount an attack um on the on constantinople they could do it later because the fleet had been allowed to run down um they you know constantinople had no home fleet um manuel had a very large one there was nothing that they could really do other than attack a few islands on the periphery um which they periodically did um anyway so it's a different context i think we shouldn't be thinking in terms of 1203 um but yeah, I mean that was a that was a call that he made that you can disagree with any number of of of, yeah. of calls that he made about that. Um but you know, generally he was successful. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely fascinating figure. I really look forward to reading your coverage of him in the book. Uh we're down to the top 5. Yes. Now I'm I'm second guessing myself. I now <laughs> I'm looking at him. <laughs> Who 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 did you write down at number five? Ioannis Timiskis. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking now, I'm not going to back off for, for the from the reasons why I put him there, but I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but okay, so let, let me let me let, let me make the case. Yeah. I am super impressed by this guy. Um, so this is uh, late 10th century John the First Timiskis. Um, in the uh, 970s. 
um, notoriously came to the throne by killing his uh, former uh, mentor and uncle, Nikiforos Lokas, in a dramatic, uh, dramatic winter night climbing up the wall of the palace with some, you know, shady accomplices and uh, decapitating him in his sleep or something like that. Anyway, um, as I said, <laughs> you know, how you came to the throne is you're not <laughs> going to be judged by that here. Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I'm so impressed with Tsimiskis is because when I wrote a history of the 10th and 11th centuries years ago, um, I was so impressed by the difference between him and Nikiforos Fokas in, in just in terms of their leadership qualities. And so perhaps it's the contrast with Fokas that I think made me appreciate Tsimiskis all the more. And I really do want to emphasize leadership qualities here because Focas did not have them outside of war. And, and spoiler alert, Nikiforos Focas will not appear on this list. He was not a good emperor. Whoa. He was a good general. He was a good general, but he was not a good emperor. Okay. Um, he, he alienated his subjects so much that when his own nephew broke into the palace and murdered him in his sleep, there were no protest, no, you know, Everybody was fine with that, except for the Fokas clan. Um, and that's because Nikiforos Fokas was not a good emperor. Um, he was not a good ruler, or um, he, was, he was perfectly good at war. Um, but by itself, that doesn't work. So Tsimiskis actually had to pick up all of the pieces, the mess that Fokas had left behind. And he did so masterfully. Um, and so this is another very clever politician now, you know, most of your audience will know Tsimiskis as just a badass general, which he was, right? So when it comes to those kinds of things, he and Focas are, are like on a level. Um, but Tsimiskis was just infinitely superior as a politician. And he managed to very quickly um, put to rest all of the tensions that Focas had created by his angry blundering into everything um, he resolved the problem with the Etonians, and they went from being enemies to friends. He quieted down the situation in the church. He gave the patriarch some, you know, go play with these things and, you know, stay quiet and he's quiet. Um, he calmed the political scene by basically scapegoating Theophano. The, this is the dynastic uh, uh, widow, right, of uh, Romanos II, the mother of Basil II. Um, I, I, as far as I can tell, the woman did nothing wrong, but the situation called for a scapegoat. Tsimiskis pinned everything on her, so out she goes. Um, and he appeased all of the factions in the church. They they were quiet. By the way, that's not easy to do, <laughs> right? Um, so he did that, and that left him free to prosecute the Bulgarian war. Uh, the war against the Rus in Bulgaria, sorry, um, the, the Bulgarians were involved too, uh, which he did incredible. This was an incredible campaign. Um, and then also to, you know, police the East. Uh, he he went on a, you know, a, a, at least one big tour <laughs> of the Eastern frontier, um, scaring everybody away again, uh, reaching Damascus. And, you know, he just kind of extended the circle um, of... Uh, respect, let's say, or fear in which the Romans were were held. Um, so uh, he was kind of like an all around excellent leader, like in every quality that you would expect. 
you know, you, you he gets a check mark. Um, he's just very well done. And also he liked to party and, <laughs> and have a good time and so forth. And, you know, people had to accept that. What are you going to do? So um, not, not an ascetic type by any means. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah, that's the case. It's a pretty straightforward case. Um, drawbacks, not a tremendous impact on posterity. Um, you know, it's not like he made any major reforms or anything like that. Didn't have to. Um, there is one minor thing he did in terms of grouping the various themes together under the the Zukes, which who were like these these overall commanders in the provinces. That seems to date from his reign, but you know that's a mid level kind of reform. It wasn't anything spectacular. Um, so just a pretty good uh, ruler all around. And how do you balance his shorter reign compared to? the long reigns of some of the people who are lower on the list. Yeah, no, that's definitely an issue. Um, um, you know, no, you're right. I mean, <laughs> it, it, and it, and it goes to historical impact too. Uh, mm. But there, there's a, just a case to be made for someone who, who, who did what he had to do well, even if it was only for six years. Mm. Um, and this is why I was second guessing myself. Like, yeah, may his historical impact maybe not not that enormous or anything. So, I might be willing to revise that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll support you on the the campaign against the Rus in part because when you follow the narrative the way we do on the podcast, all I'd seen is Roman armies heading north towards the Danube and losing against the Bulgarians and. Uh, various tribes just uh, over the centuries it, it felt like it was quite hard to get people to to stand and fight there that they know they can run home they know you know mm -hmm. that those situations get out of control very quickly and he really won a spectacular victory so that was yeah. impressive yes so who who is at number four so um all of our remaining finalists had long reigns so your your concern which is legitimate is going to be addressed here so number four um not sure what to call him traditional name is ioannis the third lucas vatadzis okay. so 13th century you haven't gotten to him yet right so there'll be no and... pushback from me <laughs> <laughs> really oh okay <laughs> um so he goes by a number of na names um because in that period, these aristocratic names were super long and they kept picking and choosing which surname they wanted to be identified with. But traditionally, we call him John III Vatadzis. So I'm just going to call him Vatadzis, um, just for the sake of convenience. So very long reign, uh, 30 years or so in the 13th century. And this is the person who basically, who more than anyone else, put the empire back together again after the mess of the created by the fourth crusade so based in the the state of nicaea in uh, northwestern asia minor he strengthened it and expanded its reach into the balkans um basically recreating you know, as as much of the empire as would ever be put together again, except for Constantinople. Uh, so it was only a few years after his death that by 
a sheer fluke, Michael VIII took Constantinople back um, in in twelve sixty one. Uh, this just you know, had Batazis lived longer, that that prize might have fallen into his lap uh, just as easily. Um, and and he certainly deserved it. Um, so this is someone who is a very good planner, organizer, administrator, um, and general. Um, so military defense was his first priority, but also, uh, and, and, and we know that he made specific provision for um, the frontier to be well-equipped and well-paid. Um, and he was also apparently a very good sort of economic planner. Um, and so he was very involved in agricultural productivity, imports, exports, uh, the fiscal system, and so forth. And all of our sources basically say that he fostered, you know, economic prosperity among his subjects. Um, he was not out of money um, and was also very diplomatically um, uh, active. And this is at a time, right, when he had ambassadors going as far as Mongolia on the one hand and Western Europe on the other. Um, making marriage alliances with the Hohenstaufen German emperors, um, like all over the place. So um, just a, and in a certain sense, he's like Tsimiskis, like an all around good ruler. So much so that he was called um, John the Good, Kaloyanis. Um, and one of the very few, um, well, possibly the only um, East Roman emperor um, after Constantine who, um, was celebrated as a saint locally. You know, his cult didn't you know, make it big time, but he was. So he was very, very respected and honored um, and was all around a good ruler. So Tsimiskis, but kind of writ large, except, he, okay, he doesn't have the kind of campaign flair that Tsimiskis did, right? This kind of like heroic over the top. Yeah, Tsimiskis could do that because he had the 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 you know, crack armies that the East Romans ever had, but Lucas, you know, Batazis didn't have that, but very good general. So same as Timiskis, but for a longer period. Do you sort of give him more credit because he wasn't ruling an empire from Constantinople with all the resources that, say, Manuel would have had? Like, was that, it made it a harder job for him? It was, yes. Um, they managed to recreate a kind of mini Constantinople at Nicaea, um, which it was sort of a capital. Um, but that is had a number of capitals. So um, there was another one at Nymphaean, which is further south. And, and he had his treasury at yet another place, Magnesia. Um, But I mean, these are all in Western Asia Minor. They're, they're fairly close to each other. Yeah, I think these are more difficult circumstances. Um, and... Um, and there's there's not much of a downside to him like with manuel we do have all of these problems right um but this this guy you know it's pretty good uh he, you know for all we know he might have actually even been a usurper um there's some funny business around the way he came to the throne but again what what happens on the way to the throne stays on the way to the throne <laughs> um and also he he wrote this incredible letter to one of the popes. I can't remember. I think it was a Gregory something, which is just, <laughs> I laugh every time I read it. I, it it's so, 
it's so um i don't know what the word um that for a while it was suspected that this was not original but it is it 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 totally is it's it's one of these where the pope has threatened him with another crusade and and Vatadis has just had enough with this and and he's basically like do your worst like <laughs> send what you got we'll we'll deal with it and he goes on and on about you know his people's rights to Constantinople and what they're based on and it's it's all very sharp and eloquent and anyway it's one of those moments when you want to say you know you, you you go, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really look forward to covering him on the podcast. Uh, I have no pushback. So who is number three? Anastasius the first. Now, this warms my heart because uh, <laughs> Wait, I... What? Let me ask you, why? Because I sort of very much followed uh, Procopius, uh, I think, in seeing Anastasius as... An emperor who said, "My job is to manage the empire, not to found a hundred cities, invade Africa, Italy, and Spain, and ignore bubonic plague, and carry on all these things." So I, I was very influenced by that and thought, "Oh, Anastasius did a great job." So, yes, yes, let's hear the case for uh, uh, right. Anastasius. So interesting fellow. Um, I don't want to say. I don't want to say he's a nobody, but there's this weird moment in 491 when the previous emperor, Zeno, dies. Now, Zeno's an immensely controversial figure who was hated by so many of his subjects, um, even though he didn't actually do anything wrong, but whatever. He's hated, like, there, there's some ethnic prejudice there and all mm. kinds of things. Um, and who managed to somehow survive all these plots and rebellions through sheer, you know, wily ruses and so forth. Anyway, um, and there's no heir and except the empress. So there's an Augusta, um, Ariadne, and to make a long story short, the choice comes to her and she appoints Anastasius, who is like a mid-level palace official. And... You, you again you gotta wonder like why anyway and he turns out to be he's a childish uh childless old man so it's another one of those um you know let's appoint someone who's not going to leave an heir and possibly die quickly and we'll and we'll get to do this again mm -hmm. <laughs> um but he lasts for a very long time um right again almost 30 years and so what i like about anastasius is pretty much what you said um, that he took his responsibility seriously to govern in the interests of his subjects and to promote their welfare and prosperity. Uh, and he did so successfully, as far as we can tell. Um, so he's a very careful administrator. He left a large surplus in the treasury. This is what enabled Justinian to pay for all those wars in the Hagia Sophia and all of that. Uh, so careful budgeting, um, you know, one of his goals was to promote the stability of the empire. So to do that, he had to wage a war in Isauria. So you've talked about the Isaurians, kind of, uh, especially the mountainous part of Isauria was, uh, you know, what the Romans would call not yet pacified. Um, and he pacified it once and for all. Um, so the Isaurians had conducted raids in the past against other parts of the empire. And that ended. So um, that was sort of very successful. Um, 
And at the same time, he had to deal with what was probably the most um, fractious state of the Christian church, like almost ever, um, between partisans and opponents of the Council of Chalcedon. 451, this church council makes some decisions, half the people in the empire hate it, half, well, of those who have an opinion, and, and I don't know, it, that could be a minority, of those who had an opinion, half hated it, half loved it. And Anastasius had to steer a very, very careful course in order to keep the peace. And generally he did so. Um, he, he maintained a kind of neutral stance. Um, he probably sided with one faction more than the other toward the end of his reign. He was probably putting his fingers on the scales to benefit the opponents of Chalcedon but not in a major or overt way. It, it, it just so happened that the, the, the prosopography played out that way. You know, in other words, the opponents of Chalcedon had um, a number of very dynamic uh, bishops on their side. They seemed to be gaining the momentum. And from an imperial standpoint, um, uh, you know, what you want is to keep the peace. And so he sided with the faction that seemed to be more capable of delivering that. But... I think it's a positive for him that he did not engage in kind of Justinianic adventures. Um, I, I think those Justinianic adventures were um, were very destructive um, in, in the end, um, even more so than manuals. Um, but um, I, I think Anastasius had the means, but didn't um, engage in that sort of thing. Very good at diplomacy too. Uh, so again, overall, very successful emperor, um, and like, literally, if I had to pick someone to, you know, as a ruler for like, if I had to live in that, it would be this guy of anybody on this list. Mm. That He made a very good impression on me at the time, though, admittedly, when my research was much less um, rigorous than it is now. Um, but the, the story was that he abolished a tax and then people celebrated the holiday because he abolished the tax and... My memory yes. is also that the Sassanids attacked and he kind of raised a large army to, to drive them back and then stopped. There was no escalation of that conflict. It was just, I'm letting you know you can't keep these cities you've attacked. And it, that felt very restrained to me as well. Um, but I may yes. be misremembering. Yes, though... The way he let them know that this was not okay was by building up Zaras, um, this frontier on the this uh, this massively fortified bunker on the frontier. This annoyed the Persians immensely. Like for the next <laughs> century or more, this this Zaras thing was like the, a thorn in their side. They hated that. Um, so he he did have his revenge in a way, but you're right. He didn't escalate that. Because I think he understood what the structural dynamics of the Persian Empire were. Hmm. That, you know, their, their shahs occasionally needed a short-term cash grab or, you know, some glory to whatever, because they were in a pretty weak position at that time. Um, and that this wasn't some kind of deeper problem that he necessarily had to, you know, quote, solve through military means. And, and he was right. Um, it was a major war. It flared up for a couple of years in the early 500s. And then there was peace again. And Justinian and Kusro started stirring the pot again. But and it, that was a generation later. 
Um, yeah, no, I I think uh, I'm very pleased with that choice. I mean, I suppose it's he did not choose a successor. Um, he also did not. <laughs> yes, he sort of left three nephews, sort of who could conceivably have taken over. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Whether that's a recipe for for conflict or or whether that's a good thing because you've you've said here are your options to the well to the inevitably it was a recipe for conflict because one of them during the Nika insurrection, you know, uh, made a made a go at it. However, um, that person Hippatius was so incredibly incompetent, <laughs> like lost every battle he was sent to fight, was just disastrous, that when Anastasius was dying, very, very old man, Hippatius was like somewhere in, like he had posted him to Antioch, which is almost as close as you can get as saying, don't, please don't <laughs> appoint this person my successor. Uh, very good. Yes. So, um, yeah, Anastasius's yeah. case, not appointing a successor is another plus because the, the persons right. who were close to him would not have been good. Very good. Who is number two? Number two is Constantine V. Okay. Very, very interesting. So, yes, I, I brought him up earlier, son of Leo III, and in theory, the uh, iconoclast in chief, but we are uh, heavily suspicious of those sources. Um, yes, we are definitely suspicious of those sources, but he also certainly was the iconoclast in chief, whatever it was that iconoclasm was. But this is not, this is not how we judge Constantine V. And maybe I should have put Anastasius above him. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure right now, but Constantine V deserves um, recognition in part because he is the most unfairly vilified emperor in the whole sequence, right? Uh, so again, ruled for a very long time, um, you know, again, 30-some years. Uh, do you, do you want to, sorry to interrupt. Any, do you, what's that? Sorry to interrupt. Do you want to remind listeners of his sobriquet or, uh, you know, uh, the dung name? Oh, oh. Or, yeah, <laughs> Copronymous. Okay, but so, this is part of the vilification. Yes, exactly. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Um. Yes, yes. So, um, again, uh, very successful in just about everything he did. Um, he was really in charge of the empire in a in a significant way. Uh, this is so in the first years, he faced a rebellion by his uh, is it brother-in-law or something. Anyway, Artavazos, a fellow general of Leo III, um, manages to defeat him in a very hard fought civil war that lasted a couple years. Um, and which already revealed Constantine's strategic genius. I mean, the the way he defeated Artavasos and his sons was was brilliant. Um, but thereafter, he was pretty much unchallenged, except for a, a major sort of conspiracy. We we don't know the details because it's hidden behind all of the distortions in the um, iconophile sources. In the seven sixties, there's a, there appears to have been in one year some some kind of thing that that set off all these alarms and Constantine had to you know to punish a number of people but other than that um he's a very much a larger than life figure 
um, and was kind of, I think, felt that to be that way at the time. You know, there were stories about him fighting dragons and um, things like that. And he is in many ways a refounder of certainly Constantinople after the major decline of the seventh century. So he, you know, reopens the aqueduct and he brings people in and he repopulates the city after this plague. Um, and he reorganizes the armies so that, um, and in part, this is a response to the dangers posed by, you know, generals in the provinces, um, so that there are the generals in the provinces um, later, which become the themes and their strategoi. Um, but he also creates the central mobile armies, the tagmata, uh, which were like more professional mobile strike, striking armies um, that became the foundation for the gradual Byzantine uh, revival and, and expansion. And it begins at this time. Um, so we talked earlier about Leo III being this kind of tipping point between being on the defensive and a kind of equilibrium. It's with Constantine V that the empire begins to strike back. Um, and, and he's just a very impressive figure in, in all of these ways. Um, very similar to Manuel in, in these respects, um, though without the downsides. Um, so and and also it's not a period that has the kind of flair, right? The eighth century is is the least well-documented period. Um, it was it was also the point at which the emperor empire was the poorest. Right. I mean, setting aside the final century. Um, and so there was just wasn't the kinds of resources to build grand grand monuments and have lots of orators singing your praises at court ceremonies with flashing lights and elevated podium. Like, OK, he doesn't have the means for all of that sort of thing. Um, but he definitely understood spectacle. Um, there are these accounts of the these um, these kind of shows that he would put on for the people in the hippodrome to humiliate his political opponents and 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 bring other people on side the regime um the people of constantinople seem to have loved him he was a very good general he goes on the offensive against the arabs um uh yeah, two at least two major expeditions into the transcaucasus um so and also reorganizes the financial system so that he puts the empire in a trajectory of military growth, security, and economic prosperity. And, you know, so he he's the one who enables later emperors to gradually re-monetize the way the economy works um, and move away from just moving goods in bulk around. Um, so for these reasons, he's in, in many ways a kind of second founder um, of the Eastern Empire and and deserves credit for that. Uh, downsides. Um, I'm not sure he needed to pick those fights with the Bulgarians um, that he did. He, he, he kind of used them as punching bags um, and didn't really win any kind of decisive victory. I think, I suspect he was aiming to kind of liquidate the Bulgars, sorry, these are Bulgars, his pre-conversion, um, the Bulgars in, in Thrace. But he, if that was his goal, it didn't work. And there was no reason to, I don't think he had to go on the offensive. By the way, just for your readers, again, your audience, um, it's, it's often believed that Byzantium and Bulgaria are like these 
enemies in in the Balkans. Really, that's not true. Um, so if you tally up the years between their appearance um, in the Upper Danube area in like the late seventh century and uh, Basel II's conquest of Bulgaria in 1018, uh, two thirds of that time they're at peace, and one third of that time they're at war. So the normal situation between Bulgaria, um, Byzantium and the Bulgars slash Bulgarians is one of peace. Anyway, eh, so Constantine, I don't know. I don't know that he needed to do that. Um, and as far as the iconoclasm is concerned, uh, I, I'm so yes, he had something, some problem with icons. He codified it at a council. Everybody seems to have gone along with it at the time. I, I don't believe the stories in the texts about resistance and martyrdom and all that. They, they've been shown to be mostly made up. So the iconoclasm was real, whatever he was trying to do. I mean, it's not clear. Um, the opposition to it was not. And they made up all kinds of things about him. It's just so distorted that I think simply for that purpose alone, we need to put him high on the list just to restore the balance here. And so the name that they gave him was Copronimos, which means like dung name or shit name. The, the idea being that he had defecated in a baptismal font when, when he was being baptized. And anyway, and so, you know, again, not true, but <laughs> whatever. So an immense amount of vitriol and hatred directed against him. Um, for reasons that had nothing to do with his rulership qualities. Um, you know, ironically, some of this stuff strikes us very differently these days. So the suggestion that he may have, you know, had homosexual inclinations, like for me as a plus, like makes him way more interesting. Again. <laughs> like that, that would have been awesome. But um, again, like the secular life, parties, charioteers, secular monuments, you know, paintings and things like that. So, uh, yeah, Constantine V, a uh, really impressive personality. Very good. I don't really have a lot of pushback. My memory is that the Islamic world was going through a major civil war during his reign. So he would benefit from that, it gave him some yes. breathing room. But you can hardly say he exactly. had an easy time. So, um, No, those weren't easy times. And... No. Yeah. No, no, you're right. I mean, they were going through the whole Abbasid revolution. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I can't argue with, with his record. And I think he was mostly victorious against the Bulgarians. I know. Yeah, I remember yeah, one, one campaign goes wrong, but yeah. 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 No, very. And, and yeah, I mean, a brilliant, a brilliant sort of um, tearing down of, of, of former prejudices, I think, um, which is brilliant. So that leaves us with, who is at number one? And there are some major people missing. So we will we'll mention them in passing after this. So who is number one? Well, you want to guess? Well, you see, I have not covered Constantine the first on this podcast, ah. but I I assume you might go Heraclius. So uh No, um, uh, it is Constantine the First. Okay. And this was not an easy choice. No. Um in the same way that number 10, Theodosius I, was not an easy choice. However, the more I thought about it, I, I found myself increasingly unable to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. So Constantine I, it is. Um, and let, let, me, let me explain why. 
So this is the figure who gets the most points for making consequential decisions. So consequential that they're, they're just like, no one else even comes close, right? And two of the obvious ones are the foundation of Constantinople. And boy, did he get that right. And his choice for, well, it's not entirely clear what he did with Christianity and the church, but at least he came out as a Christian and supported the church. And more than that, he normalized it within the imperial order, right? He didn't make it the, the official religion, uh, but he kind of indicated that he was generally in support of it. And the rest is history. Like that's been talked about more than any other aspect of his reign. I will add also his um, institution of the Roman gold coin, the solidus at 72 to the Roman pound, um, where it remained thereafter for like the next 700 years. Um, this was another very, very consequential um, uh, move. And there's a host of other administrative reforms um, that are attached to his name. They you know, become sort of progressively less important as you, as you go down here. But just in the ones that we've mentioned, um, in terms of um, normalizing the church within imperial social order and the law, that is creating a legal framework that would govern the church thereafter. Like that's momentous. And um, th this is not this is not the triumph of Christianity as is often depicted. I mean, you can see it that way, but that's not really what happened. It's it's that the the church got absorbed into the imperial social order and regulated by it. Um, the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, um, setting aside whatever it is that Nicaea decided, and some people, you know, might believe just based on their own, you know, personal, like their, their belief and so on, that, that, that Nicaea is important because of the doctrine that it codified. But Nicaea is also important because it kind of established a template for ecumenical councils that was followed for many, many centuries thereafter in the East thereafter, and, you know, and, until the fall of Constantinople, in the West until they gradually realized that, oh, wait, no, we can have councils without emperors, but that was later. Um, so the whole idea of creating a governance structure in the church that was supra-regional, um, that's that's Constantine's. Um, but also we can name all kinds of, you know, administrative and military and so forth, uh, uh, reforms and also his, his actions. Um, he was very successful general, um, he generally knew how to handle people. Um, so he could get angry sometimes, but generally um, he, he was successful in internal diplomacy in um, projecting an image of himself that could satisfy a number of different constituencies, right? So to the Christians, he, he presented himself as a Christian to his other subjects, he presented himself in ways that they found familiar. Think of his statue, right, in in, in the form of Constantine in Constantinople that you mentioned is a huge nude Apollo. Um, so he had some subtlety to him, um, you know, despite being a, a military person who spent his entire life in the camps. Like, this isn't a... And... Um... Now, having said that, um, 
he was a murderous son of a bitch. Mm. I mean, he killed more pe- more of his own family than any other Roman emperor. <laughs> it's amazing. Like you did not want to be near this guy, especially related to him. that. That was that was the by far the most dangerous um, position. The rest of his subjects, they, they you know, I, I'm pretty sure they all thought he was a very good emperor um, in all of the ways that the others were um, in the East, right, or in the West as well. Uh, very good at defending the frontier, an administrator in the economy. Um, and he made these very, very consequential decisions, which required a lot of money. And, you know, in part, he subsidized, he paid for a lot of that by uh, the temple treasuries that he confiscated. So he put all of that gold into circulation. Um, well, that's a rather clinical economic way of describing what happened, but <laughs> I'm sure the worshipers at those temples didn't appreciate that. Mm. Um, but it's 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 hard to argue that anybody else made more consequential decisions for the empire and was a better you know, more capable ruler than he was pretty capable in, in, in that regard. I, I just wouldn't want to get very near him. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, well, so that's, there you go. That's, that's, that's the list. Well, that's fantastic. Now, obviously I haven't studied him in detail, but do you think he needed to destroy the Tetrarchy the way he did? Would it have been better for the Roman world if he'd said, I'll be Western emperor and you be Eastern emperor and we'll, call it a day or were there benefits to him sort of destroying all his enemies no there weren't um this was just ambition um which again is sort of endemic to the roman imperial system i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's anyway um he destroyed the tetrarchy it's not clear that that tetrarchy could have worked like the wheels were already coming off before he decided to do anything it it sounds like a great idea to have this system of regular succession where people just kind of step down and it's not like biological and whatever but i i don't know that it would have been that viable and in a sense constantine recreated the tetrarchy he just did it within his own family mm. like you know he he left the empire to four heirs they were just sons and nephews and whatever um his dynasty was the first in roman history to reach the third generation right in in part because of that yeah and you know he was anyway um yeah i I wouldn't judge constantine too harshly for doing that because i'm not sure what viability the tetrarchy had Mm. Do we get the sense that he chose the site of Byzantium for strategic reasons, or was it sort of the the right empty space to to build a, a new Rome for his own sort of political and PR mm-hmm. benefits? So that's a very big discussion. Um, <laughs> so maybe too big. It, yeah. So I can answer it quickly, and I can say that even though our sources do not explain. They don't mm. really say anything about why he picked that site. I think I can make a convincing argument that it was for strategic reasons, but not the kind of strategic reasons that, say, a Leo III would have pointed mm. to. In other words, I don't think Constantine was thinking about, hey, what happens if some 
enemy who's massively more powerful than the Roman Empire reaches the point where I'm going to build a city. Where do I want to build it? I, I don't think he was thinking that way at all. No. Um, in a nutshell, if you look at the history of pre-Constantinian Byzantium, the city, um, it was the fracture point where the Roman Empire would break. So mm -hmm. a lot of the wars that had been fought in previous like uh, battles that were fought in previous civil wars were there. Mm. And it was this kind of point because, you know, because of the Bosporus and that's where Asia and Europe meet and so forth. It, 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 it was a natural place for the empire to break. And I think by putting it there, he clamped to the Balkans and Asia Minor and by extension Syria together and it worked. Mm. Um, so I, I credit his genius with that. I mean, I think it Constantinople is not just this, you know, abstract thing that he founded that lasted for forever down to today. It, it was designed to do a very specific thing that that it did. And then it turned out later it had even more strategic advantages than, than they had imagined. So, mm. yeah, points to him for that. Well, I I think that's a great list because uh, ideally what I want in a list is what I did not expect to see. And uh, and some unusual names on there, you know, given the usual thing you find on the internet. Um, so I have to ask you about just a few uh, big names, just briefly, I guess. Um, I, like you, would not include Justinian on a top 10 list, but most people do. Why would you not? Well, in his case, I think the negatives outweigh the positives. There's some, and, and <laughs> in his case, they are massive in both categories. Yes. Like we're, these are, we're talking about gigantic accomplishments and gigantic blunders and destructive acts, um, like on a scale that, that these other emperors usually didn't meet. But for me, the negatives outweigh the positives. And I think most of the audience knows what those are. Mm. Um, yeah, Justinian kind of terrifies me. <laughs> elaborate on that beyond the Nika rides um no i mean he this is a person who spent his entire reign minus two very um small moments in the palace mm. didn't get out and was this kind of hub from where these endless instructions and orders and summons would come um, and the process by which he, um, the processes by which he thought out and implemented all of these projects that he had, so many of them all at the same time. I mean, and don't get me wrong, Justinian was an impressive individual to be able to juggle all of this and to conceive all of this stuff, like no doubt. Um, but it's very opaque process and the mind behind them strikes me sometimes as very, very cold and calculating and um, in, in almost in a modern um, way, um, he was comfortable with externalizing the costs and the damage of his policies to other people, even very, very large groups of people. Um, from like almost with this kind of executive coldness that I don't know, it just kind of scares me. And it's possible you might say, okay, well, all, all emperors did that to a certain degree. Yeah, he did it to a very great degree. Um, and we actually, we, since we have all of his legal texts, we can 
we can see how he chose to express himself. And I don't like what I see. Um, now, that's that's very subjective. That's not why I that's not what I base my assessment on. My assessment can is based on like numbers. Yes. And 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 he did incredible damage. So I would have preferred someone to do less like Anastasius and leave his subjects way better off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. I mean, that's I just want to have a whole conversation about <laughs> what you see. Anytime. Yeah. But that, yeah. that's another day. Okay, so Heraclius, a very popular choice on most. Why would Heraclius even like <laughs> I'm sorry, I just don't see it. No. No. <laughs> you know, risking uh risking a lot to regain a lot and having the 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 competence to leave your capital, you know, undefended by you, but know that it will be safe and, you know, clever strategic long war. So Heraclius is more a figure for tragedy <laughs> or some sort of dramatic play. I, I don't think he belongs on this list. So um, Heraclius... Okay, let's set aside the very destructive civil war that he waged to become emperor. Again, I haven't counted that against other people, though his was particularly destructive. Mm. Um, they ruined Egypt, a, a province that hadn't yet been ruined. But anyway, um, all, I mean, all he really did was this one spectacular campaign in the Caucasus one for one year where he basically dodged and defeated a series of Persian armies only to end up back in Asia Minor with like it was a wash like he didn't gain anything okay those maneuvers are very impressive granted but they didn't accomplish anything and then uh next year he pushes into Mesopotamia to defeat the Persian Empire. So that's one move, and it worked. Um, I don't think that that by itself is sufficient to put him on this list, um, in part because uh, he lost all of it to the Arabs subsequently. Um, he, he, his armies were just kept getting defeated over and over and over again, in, himself included. Um, in the 30s when the Arabs arrived. Um, and also, I'm not entirely sure that the knockout victory against the Persian Empire was entirely his doing. I think he had a massive army of Turks with him. Um, that Okay, so kudos for organizing that alliance and for making it happen. Um, but there are places where you can see that his propaganda has kind of written the Turks out of the picture, but there are places where they're still there. And it's. I think this was a joint effort. So what he, what it, what Heraclius essentially has to his name is one impressive virtuoso campaign in the Caucasus that accomplished very little, and then a sudden knockout blow with an ally. Eh, okay, there's so <laughs> many negatives that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, fascinating. I mean, absolutely fascinating. Um... But yeah, we can't we can't really debate on on and on for hours about that. But I think people will will be very interested to know more. Um, uh, honorable mentions, just very briefly, would uh, Romanos Lecapinos um, or yes. uh, 
one more, or John Komnenos. Would either of them be in the top 15? Absolutely. Or... Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and even Basel the first. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Nikki Forrest forecast somewhere. A yeah. bit below them. Yeah. I- impressive general, no question. But I explained earlier why I don't think he was a good emperor. Yeah. That is a fascinating list. Um, would yeah, that I, li- I, I, I hope <laughs> to have provided some surprises too. I oh, mean, I think I you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. I am waiting for the endless stream of comments about Heraclius. <laughs> Heraclius was the best. What are you talking about? Um, would that list, do you think, have been different before you wrote your history of Byzantium? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, because I, I worked through all of these people on a very close level to write it. Um, and you know, this list might be different in two weeks. If you ask me to do it again, like, okay, I'm mm. not, these are, yeah. you know, there's some subjective here. I, I I'll grant that. Um, but, um, there are, uh, figures here whom I, before looking at them very closely in their situation. And that's all a part, what I've tried to do. I, I, I try to calibrate the sort of their ranking, as it were, based on the kind of situation that they had inherited. Mm. So, you know, I, I I will appreciate someone more if they uh, uh, rose to the throne under very, very difficult circumstances. Yes. Final question. If you had to go for a beer with one of these 10, who would it be? <laughs> um, let's see. Constantine V, for sure. Um, I, I think that would have been tremendous fun. Um, Manuel the first, possibly, um, Alexius, if I could have a private conversation, if there's no one watching and he can sort of let his hair down as it were. (laughs) Yes. Those those are, those are among the most interesting people. Yeah. Very, very good. Well, all I can say is thank you so much for that brilliant list and uh, for all the social media abuse you probably won't read about your choices. <laughs> which, no, 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 no. <laughs> which, are, But I think fantastic. And uh, yeah, you may have to, I mean, I imagine when your book comes out, it's going to be very difficult for me to restrain myself in asking 150 different questions, but we'll try to, uh, we'll try to do justice to, to the work you've done. Um, I, I'm always happy to do so, Robin, and I've lost count of the number of students who come up to me and say, I took your course because I was listening to Robin's podcast since forever. Ah, well, that's fantastic. Oh, yes. Ah. yes so thank you for, uh, for, for all of that. A tremendous ah. service to our field, I gotta say. Oh, I'm, I'm really thrilled with that. That's brilliant. Uh, well, thank you again, and we will speak to you again in a few months' time. Thanks, Robin. Take care. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.